Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. So, so last time we were talking about this idea of middle ground and Aristotelian ethics and how there are other ways of doing it, though. Uh, definitely. And um, other ways of understanding ethics and understanding how we establish what's the right thing to do. Or and, and how we should judge actions. And how, how we should judge actions as well. Um, and I was wondering, is there a difference... Of, and I wonder if the difference between the Aristotelian way and these other ways that we will explore is a difference in, um, how can I say, what we judge, right? Because it mm. seems that the ancients, and Aristotle in particular, are concerned with this question, how should one live? While this other, um, the other perspectives are interested more in questions like, how should one act? Right. 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 So for the Greeks, it was how should I be? Mm-hmm. Right. What kind of person should I be? Yes. Whereas for the stuff that comes out of the modern and post, post, yeah, right, the, the moderns, um, it's about how should I act? And so instead of judging people and their character, we're judging what you do, we're judging your actions. And I think that's already a, a, an interesting distinction here. And I wonder what we think about what's the what's the correct what's the correct way mm. of understanding because while there is definitely an appeal and we talked about this the entire episode last time um, of in the Aristotelian canon right of this idea of judging one's character I think there are pitfalls with that as well right because then you are defined by we end up judging people rather than what people do. Mm-hmm. Or at least you can get there. I don't think Aristotle goes that direction, but if we're talking about um, understanding or judging the character of people rather than judging actions, right, then you might be driven to thinking that a person that does bad things is a bad person mm. necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm completely comfortable with that. And I wonder if there's also a gap because it's like, okay, maybe you're not a bad person, because you did this thing. Maybe you don't become 100% unvirtuous. But we still need to judge the action in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And what the best method is is to be decided, but maybe the most popular and easiest place to start is with this idea of utilitarianism. Absolutely. And this idea that, you know, at the end of the day, I always say the best way to understand utilitarianism is thinking of the greater good. Right of this idea that we might and we should judge actions, what somebody does, mm-hmm. based on what comes out of those actions, on the consequences of this action. And specifically, a good action is an action that produces, literally, the most amount of pleasure mm-hmm. at the end of the day, well, in general, 
not for one person, not necessarily for a group of people, but in general. But in total, right? In and total. And so I, I always make the metaphor, it's like injecting pleasure in the universe, right? Gotcha. If there's a net positive of pleasure injected in the universe, that action that you perform was the right action. That was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. If there is negative the amount of pleasure, meaning if you are injecting instead pain in the universe, that's the wrong thing. You did the right. wrong thing. Right. And so at least the way Mill speaks about it, it's producing the greatest amount of pleasure for mm-hmm. the greatest amount of people. And that doesn't necessarily exclude oneself, as you've mentioned. No, absolutely. Right. So it's not like this ultimate kind of collectivism. It's just what could I do that will maximize happiness for everyone, myself included, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and I wonder if if this is still kind of, um, if this is still bridging the gap of which we talked about before between the individual and the collective. I was thinking it might, yeah. Um, and But at the same time, uh, we don't have to forget that with this point of view, it doesn't matter who benefits, right? It is, That's true. It is in general. And... I'm not sure that it is necessarily for the most amount of people, though. Is it? Or is it more, again, this general neutral thing? Well, it seems to be the the people involved Mm -hmm. who are likely to be affected by the decision. Um, And he considers not just quantity, but quality. And I think this is the benefit of Mill. Yes, compared to Bentham, definitely. Um, But I think that still with Mill, so let's assume that uh, there are five people involved in an action, right? It is me, you, and another three people, um, and another three people. Um, I think that, let's say, we decide to do something, and me and you are gaining pleasure out of this thing that we're doing, and the other three people are actually in pain because of the three, this thing that we're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that at the end of the day, if our pleasure is more than their pain, the action is still permissible. The action is still good. Yes. So it's not about the greatest amount of people, but the greatest amount of pleasure. Exactly. Yeah. And I wonder if that is problematic, so to speak. Certainly could be. Um, And there are millions of examples that we can do. Um, But I... But before we get to the problems, I wonder if there are any benefits, if you think there are any benefits from uh, Hmm. within this theory. Well, it seems like you might say it's pragmatic Hmm. in that people say, how should we get things done? Well, we should consider what benefits the most amount of people. And of course, that's not exactly what it is for the reasons we're saying. It's about pleasure and not people. But still, that's how people are going to interpret it. And so it seems like when you're faced with a decision... And the decision's like, okay, I can cause a little bit of pleasure for a couple of people, or I can cause a lot of pleasure for a lot of people. And since I want to help the greater good, I don't want to leave all those people in the dark. It would seem to be unfair. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes there's there might be an overlap between the utilitarian mindset and the democratic mindset. And since democracy is so ingrained in contemporary society here... It kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, why a lot of people fall towards that. I think that another uh, benefit um, of this has to do with, of this theory has to do with the fact that actions become neutral, quote unquote, right? Mm. That the value is attached to the consequence 
and not the action itself, which True. is problematic from some perspective, but it kind of free us, frees us uh, from saying that I cannot do this in, under any circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. So we had the opportunity with utilitarianism to say, hey, at the end of the day, it's not killing that's bad, but it is rather what comes out of that killing. They always say, you know, of course, if I'm killing someone just because I want to, the utilitarian will not uh, condone that because, again, it's your pleasure versus the most amount of pain that you can inflict, which is killing someone. However, if there is somebody uh, doing, if there's a terrorist or somebody doing about to do something terrible that's going to hurt all people, I am somehow allowed to kill that person. Right. So the, the, the act of killing is not an issue. It is rather the consequence that come from that killing. And if the consequence that come from the killing is benefiting, avoiding pain for the majority, for, for a large number of people, I should do that. Yeah, and, and so that seems to be the other pragmatic element. The, the one uh, pragmatic element would be that we're caring about the greater good, but the second is that it's this consequentialist approach where it's like, hey, I don't care what you're thinking. Um, I don't really care what you're doing. Show me what's going to result from that, and then I'll judge you based on the results. And if we judge something based on the results, then exactly what you're saying is true. It, it frees us mm-hmm. to make some of these actions. Um, it gives us some gray area or wiggle room. So it definitely brings with it some benefits. Um, however, in ditching motivation altogether... We run into issues, right? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and the issues are not small, mm. I want to say. Um, and I and I think that, the, and we'll talk about them in a second. And I think that's not just the ditching on the motivation, but just stressing exclusively these two things, which are pleasure and consequences. We get into a a, a pretty pretty uh, uh, big problem here, because mm. I always I always say, well, if pleasure is all that matters, and this pleasure needs to be judged just within the consequences, then you can justify things that I don't think that any of us will justify. Um, think of, um, think for example of, um, let's say there is um, a, some homicide happens, right? This person gets killed, and this person is a person that's beloved in a community. Um, and because of this homicide, because of this, some this thing that happens, um, there are riots within the community. And they're destroying, they're looting the place. And now not only the people are upset because the person died and they reclaim, they claim they want justice, but also the business owners and the people that are in there and the mm. passers-by, whoever it is, all these people are afraid and upset and in pain in different ways, right? Because of that. Now, if I value just the consequences of an action and just the pleasure that these consequences bring, if I am the the police chief of that community, I might decide just to arrest you and say, he is the person who's responsible. We're going to do justice. And I'm going to just give you the, you could, so you're just going to give you capital punishment. I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the people that lost the person are at peace. Right. There is some sort of, unfortunately, we feel some sort of pleasure coming from the resolution, the fact that this person is now suffering as well, he is arrested right. and so that's, on. That's justice in that's some sense. That's justice in some sense. The looting and the rioting stops. The entire community is inputting 
pleasure into the universe. Right. And the counterindication is that you are innocent. But however, if we compare the level, there's a net positive when it comes to um, to pleasure there. That's right. And, and so when, it doesn't when, matter. And whenever you say things this way, people that were previously in favor of judging consequences rather than intentions and of thinking just about pleasure, they'll be like, well, I didn't mean that. Well, but that is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, it, it could turn into a kind of mob rule where we, we aren't concerned again with truth per se, right? Mm-hmm. the whole truth of the situation, but really what, what appears to follow from it. But then we go back to why should I be more concerned about your innocence than the pleasure of the people, right? Why is it mm. that, why does that have more value than just appeasing everyone and injecting this pleasure? Because I think that's, we need to make that argument, right? We need to establish why that's not good. Yeah, and I, I think this becomes an argument about whether or not truth is valuable in itself um, or to, to go smaller, whether or not justice has value in itself, right? This mm. is the discussion in book two of the Republic, whether or not justice is intrinsically good or good because of its consequences or good because of both. Mm-hmm. I think the answer to this question is going to depend on where we, we situate justice. But I know there's this common critique of utilitarianism that it could wind up being some terrible mob rule. Mm-hmm. And Mill, I think, tries to save himself in a couple of ways. Uh, one is by introducing quality, right? He makes mm-hmm. this distinction between the higher pleasures and the lower pleasures. So the lower pleasures, these more animalistic ones, let's say, the one that non-rational creatures can enjoy, like eating and sex, but also gambling, which is obviously rational, but <laughs> to slip up, I think. Um, whereas the higher pleasures are the more intellectual ones. Yes. And so he would say within the model... It's mm-hmm. not just about maximizing pleasure. It's about maximizing a certain kind of pleasure. And so maybe if we had this bare quantitative utilitarianism, you'd have this really animalistic, you know, brutal tribalistic um, mob rule thing. But if we integrate the intellectual pleasures, now all of a sudden truth becomes valuable. Mm. So it is – that's because truth is – a pleasure of the mind. It's a pleasure of the mind. I got you. Hmm. And this is always, um, but I, again, well, first question obviously is who decides which one are higher pleasure and which one are low pleasure, right? Yeah, well, he has this test, (laughs) right? He says those who have experienced both both. just know that one is going to be worth more than the other, Hmm. which may sound arbitrary a little bit and not not weak but to try and defend it i think there are some obvious instances where this works Mm. to go back to what i was saying in the previous example it's like if you have a child and you see one person who just eating ice cream watching netflix all day never gets out of bed Mm -hmm. uh just gambling and drinking problem that person has a lot of low pleasure right and then you have someone who made something of their life uh clearly are using their intellect they're great at social situations. They're a strong person. They can support a family. And it's like, okay, if I've experienced both of those lifestyles, I'm obviously going to choose the latter as being worth more. And if I don't, well, then I'm just wrong or irrational, I think. Um, would irrationally say. would yeah, say, yeah. right? Um, and the point is, though, in order for you to judge 
the gambler lifestyle, you needed to be a gambler, right? Hmm. Because it's not that you can judge by looking at others. It's about you. You need to. Right. If you experience both. Yes. So I, but I think that, uh, and again, going against, to go against me, the other direction, right? I don't think I need to experience rolling. That's right. I don't need to do heroin exactly. and ruin my life to know to, that it's bad. To know that it's bad. So that that this criteria is a little bit. I, I don't know if it's a good one mm. uh, from this perspective, right? Not so much for the arbitrariness, but rather I think that I can establish that certain things are bad for me, regardless of me trying them. Mm. I'm wondering if if it's a matter of you have to experience both before mm. judging or merely Being if you experienced both then you would judge and so that like mm. hypothetical precedent or, is or good may- enough or maybe the experience is relates just to being exposed to both could be like looking at oh yeah right because if that's the case, that's different. Right, like I can see someone's life being ruined, and then that's good enough for me to make the judgment, right? But at the same time, sometimes you see happy gamblers. And that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You definitely meet like chaotic people who look really fun. Exactly. And you love being around them. They're all happy, and, and you don't see the part of them that's really empty inside. Exactly, and, and then you, you don't see them going home and being like a, a complete mess. And, and being, so that, that's, that's also difficult. That's true. That's a good point. Now, but, but I think that that is the, that's the issue with utilitarianism, this, this absolutely. And also, I also say, from a more theoretical perspective, the, the fact that we, in order for us to establish if an action is good or bad, um, the fact that we rely exclusively on the consequences, I always say we are always gambling, mm-hmm. paradoxically, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're always judging a posteriori, so to speak, after the fact. Because I guess I'm assuming that, you know, killing the terrorist or torturing the terrorist's family to get information might be the right thing to do if I look just at the consequences. But that's a gamble because maybe by doing that, the terrorist has three kids and now I have three people that are mad at whatever society did this to the parents and now they're even more of a threat. And then we escalate into something even worse just to make an example. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's a problem with relying on the future, so to speak, right? Like there's always this element of unpredictability Mm -hmm. uh, that we shouldn't rely on. That's... Yeah, and, and that is problematic. Um, and one way of getting around that might be to take the totally opposite approach, which mm-hmm. is we no longer um, make a judgment based on the empirical outcome, mm-hmm. but we merely judge the faculty of reason. We go into this a priori reasoning thing, and this is where Kant's moral philosophy becomes useful. So just about rationally, what yeah. is rational, right? Yeah, it's ironic that I called it useful because he would say, no, no, no it's, <laughs> it's not, not useful. useful, it's rational. <laughs> That's right. It's rational, and it's, um, which is interesting. And, I, and just like your friend I, you were mentioning before, um, the last episode, um, I think that all of us at a certain point are fascinated with this idea, right? The right and wrong is just a matter of reasoning. That's right. It's a math problem. It's a ma- exactly. It's a math problem. It's like, and I can exactly establish, if I think enough about something, I can make. I can be sure that what it's trying is the right thing to do. It's yep. just a, a matter of finding the right solution to the problem. Anyway, with this, there are definitely some benefits to this. Um, 
because first of all, every problem becomes a solvable problem. There's mm-hmm. no, um, I don't need to gamble uh, on future outcomes. I'd rather know to begin with. And there's no wishy-washiness about interpreting whether the consequence is good or bad. Exactly. And and most of all, I think that the, the, the greater quality of this thing, the, the biggest quality of, of this way of thinking is definitely the fact that there's a clear guideline. Right. Subjective. It, it's subjective. There are rules that if you follow, if you're human, right? Because that's all the end of the day. Mm-hmm. If you're acting and if you're thinking like a human being rationally, those the way of the way of solving this math problem is just one. That's right. The solution is one. Makes everything easier. It's easier, right? But it's also terrifying. I, I will claim. <laughs> so the idea is like you act in accordance with the moral law for the sake of oh, it. Exactly. It's like it's a duty, right? That's right. I do things because first of all, I do them because they're right, and they're right because they're rational. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, stealing is not bad because of some because of sympathy towards the other it's not that you have to put yourself in someone else's shoes right it's not that you don't steal because what if somebody will steal from you right that's not the issue for for kant i would say for kant the issue is stealing is illogical because if everyone would do it there would be no private property therefore Therefore, what am i stealing stealing. Exactly. exactly so it doesn't make any sense it's a contradiction uh, and if you we and the key here is universalizing whatever I want to do, right? That's it's right. This idea that the way I put it to the test is not by putting myself in someone else's shoes, but rather thinking that if everyone will do this, what would happen? Mm-hmm. If everyone will do this at the same time, which I believe is different, right? Because he's not saying think of another person doing that right. to you. Right. It's like think if humanity would have this as a general rule. Yeah, it's like could the concept survive if the concept was universally applied and so stealing is one example lying would be another example because if everyone lies well then there's no truth and if there's no truth there can't be lying exactly so you go through this interesting thought process um and in class we've talked about how you can apply this maybe to other concepts that are more contemporary like pollution yeah right like pollution is bad because it's illogical because if everyone polluted all the time, again, not literally, but mm-hmm. in hypothesis, then there couldn't be any clean air to pollute, Pollution. and so it defeats itself. Exactly. Um, but I was saying at the same time, and and again, you do this, and it should be your duty to be rational, right? That's yes. what makes you human, uh, and then what makes you, that what gives this moral, this is what gives you moral character, right? Mm-hmm. And there's so there are two things there conflated. I think there's this will that's there for you to do the right thing. And then there's the discovery of what the right thing is, which is through this process of universalization, I want to say. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, it's, it's that a simplified way. Steps. Yeah, because goodwill, right? Mm-hmm. He says um, it is good in itself, mm-hmm. meaning it is not good because of its consequences. It may sometimes produce them, and mm-hmm. that's great. But even if it didn't, it would still it has like shine like a jewel or something exactly. like that. Um, and so that's the real goodwill, which is very different from how people typically think about goodwill, right? We think, oh, if you give to someone in charity, that's a goodwill because now the other person has a better, better life. And Kant's like, no, no that's not that's, what it is. That's not what makes it good. That's not what makes. And it's it says it says all these things like it's never there's never too much of it. Uh, it's one of those things that's great in absolute. Mm-hmm. And I was saying that though that these things while. 
great from this perspective, right? Objective can be measured, literally. Um, it's terrifying from other perspectives, I mm. would say. I would say that there are some things within this way of thinking um, that can lead us to really, really bad places. Uh, and I think the first thing that uh, was a little bit of a wake-up call with me was when I read uh, within the, I think it was in the second critique, mm-hmm. uh, when he makes the example of suicide. Mm. That he says, well, the person who's really doing the right thing is not the person that says that he shouldn't kill himself or herself because it's illogical, but he doesn't have really any desire of doing that. But rather, the person that really struggles with it, the person that really wants to do that, but he doesn't because of this duty, is the person that really, really is doing the right thing. Yes. And this devoids any good thing that you do of any value unless you're struggling with it. Yeah, right. It's like it's more valuable if you feel the pain and then do it anyway. Yes. Because it shows like that's how much you care about duty. And so if you hate your life, if every moment is a waking nightmare and you have to deal with all this pain and you choose not to kill yourself because it'll get better, wrong, right? That's the wrong answer. But like you're saying, if you choose not to kill yourself... Because that's the wrong thing to do. That's right. Like, I'm going to continue to suffer, but I'm going to still stay alive. That's your duty. And the moment you move from suicide to all other things, they become more problematic because all of a sudden, I'm not stealing, right? Mm -hmm. But the moment I'm not stealing, but I still really want to steal stuff. Mm. But I'm not doing this because that's wrong, Right, I feel this pain and this attraction towards your stuff. I'm almost there. I'm almost grabbing them. <laughs> but I'm like, no, my duty is not to do that. That is more value, and I am conversely probably a better person than if I am, you know, I don't feel any pleasure. I, I don't think it will give me anything. Right, right. Now, stealing. But however, it's wrong to steal, so I won't steal. But I don't really want your stuff. And that is not valuable enough. That's not real morality, right? That is Morality comes with a struggle. Yeah. Because because think of what, it, what this means for pedophilia or things like that. <laughs> no, that's a good point. And I think, uh, so Philip Foot, in one of her essays, asked this about Aristotle, but I think it can apply to the, the Kant situation too, which is like, who's the better person? The person who feels the temptation but fights it or the person who doesn't feel the temptation at all? Mm -hmm. And I think what you're saying is if we're placing our moral ideal in the former Mm -hmm. in in having the temptation but having the will to fight it off, that's interesting. Yes. That's very interesting. And and I don't know how I feel. Again. Right, right. It's like the person who never was tempted to commit pedophilic acts. Mm Mm-hmm. It's is not per- as it's not as right. good for cut as the one that was tempted, which is which is something, yeah, bizarre to say the least, and that is one of the problems I think with this. I don't know if you agree with this. I- no, that's definitely a good point. Um, and another problem could be, hey, um, isn't the purpose of ethics to make a better world? Hmm. So if we're not concerned at all with consequences, like what's the point? Is this even ethics? Is this just like logic at the end of the day? Uh, Yes, uh, and and I, I think what Kant would say, well, he says it's like the moral law is inside me, right? This is something personal as to the word right. me and my, my 
uh, relation with the universal law, I guess, with, mm-hmm. with this idea of duty. And probably would say, no, it's not about making the world better. It's about making myself better. And maybe in turn, this is mm-hmm. a side effect. The Which fun- is interesting because in a weird way, it sounds like he's appealing to character. Like, I become a stronger person. Yes, which I, which I believe he does. Hmm. I don't know if you agree with this. I believe he does. At least indirectly, it seems to be no, there. It's, it's not in writing. It's too smart for, to do that. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not very in writing, but mm-hmm. I think that he, he, we can definitely interpret that that way. And in, in terms of purpose, because he talks about, like, what what is the purpose of our rational faculties? And I think part of his justification for why we shouldn't look at happiness, which is what a lot of people do, is because if you look at everything that exists within the human, which is weird, he's making some kind of, like, proto-evolutionary argument, yeah. um, it seems to be best suited to a certain function, right? And that's why it survived. Yes. And he says, if we apply this to reason, the human faculty... We know that it can't be about happiness because if the purpose of reason were to be happy, then it would be failing terribly. Yes, yes, it, 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 it's very interesting, and I think that even though the second critique is like kind of, well, it's strange they even writes that right after the first one because it's like, oh, morality, we're gonna talk about it really, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but however, we can because right, it's practical. Because it's practical, right? But I think that the appeal is still the same. I mean, the kind of reasoning that he, that he employs is still the same. So there are certain characteristics that are proper human beings that are just ours, and one of them is rationality, and more rationality produces somehow these rules, and if we want to be completely human, that's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And morality is kind of a function of humanity, of being human, I want to say. Uh, this is why... Dogs are not human, are not uh, morals, right. Right? because they don't. Have, they're missing the rationality. They're missing this. Um, but it's almost. I think it seems to me that morality is almost natural for Kant. Mm. It's again a product of the fact that we have to to speak in using a language that's different from Kant. The fact that we have a brain that functions in a specific way mm-hmm. produces a. Sp- the fact that we are moral and that we care about these things and that we should. Because if we don't, I always say this, for Kant, if you are behaving immorally, you are behaving on a level that's less than human. Which is interesting because what I was just going to say is that they all seem to say, you know, Aristotle, Kant, Mill, something similar about reason and that it's like the defining characteristic of humanity and you need to be more rational to be more human. Yes. And if you are less rational, and Mill even says you would be using the faculty uh, of imitation, which is ape-like. Yes. Right? So you're, you're more like a monkey than a human, and that's exactly. certainly not valuable. But the differences are how they go about exercising that faculty of reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the other problems that seems to exist within Kant's moral philosophy, I don't know if you agree, is that it's, I think we talked about this, more useful for telling us what not to do and less useful when it comes to telling us what to do. Because this might might have even been you that that used this example, but it's like there are concepts we could universalize logically. Mm -hmm. I think think it was a student that told me that would be bad to do. Sure. Like spitting on someone, Mm -hmm. right? It's like 
if I, if everyone spit on everyone, there is no logical contradiction. So it is not uh, morally reprehensible. But I mean, that's not useful, right? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And I, I think it's right. Uh, it is useful to tell us more. Yeah, I agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, there's also another issue with it, which is it makes us almost robotic-like, right? Yes. Uh, and this idea that you, um, the moment you're you're just doing things for the sake of reason at the end of the day, right? For the sake of this duty, which is dictated by reason, uh, which, uh, which I want to say something more about that, the, the, the relation between that and humanity in a mm-hmm. minute. Um, then it's strange because it doesn't matter, and it says this clearly, it states this clearly, my wants are not right, to be right. taken in consideration. Nor is anyone else's wants. Exactly. So it's not about what I want to do, but what I have to do, what I must do, what I ought to do specifically, he says. And this is also scary because, again, at the end of the day, if I'm doing things just because I ought to and not because I want to, then I think the part of the value, mm. it's gone. I And it, we are in a weird position because we want people to want to do things right we don't want them we don't want people to do things just because they have to i don't want to be with a friend just because this friend has to be with me i want the friend to want to be with me right and it seems like that something is missing if it becomes just a rational act sure i mean think about like being in a marriage or a romantic relationship where your partner is like do you love me no, I just but, have to be. But with it is you. it is my duty. It to. is my duty to you, right? It takes away something uniquely human yes. and valuable. Yes. Uh, and again, I, I'm assuming it does. Uh, but does it? I mean, I mean, right? Because I think so. So there's this pushback that it's like humans aren't like that. That's Kant's philosophy is bad because humans aren't like that. But his response is simply going to be that's because you're not good enough. Exactly. Right? Like you're not like that. But shouldn't you be? Aren't you just justifying your weakness? Exactly. And and I wonder if, does he have a point? <laughs> to some extent, maybe. Um, I wonder I wonder if there is a middle ground between these two things again, right? Right, because we don't want ethics to be merely realistic. No. Because that seems like easy, which seems like a cop-out. And we don't want it to be based just on feelings and wants as well. Exactly. Because otherwise we're in trouble. But the moment it becomes merely rational, then I wonder if we wouldn't be better uh, in our lives if we were surrounded by robots, right? Then mm. there's this equation in their head that they always do the right thing at all times and they have no will and that's will be the ideal society, right? Weird place. Right? We, but if we go, if we really go that direction, the ideal society will be a society where there is a human being surrounded by a certain amount of robots and that human <laughs> being will be absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but again, happiness doesn't matter, I guess. It but. doesn't, right? And again, it's not just my happiness doesn't matter. It's other people's happiness doesn't exactly. matter. So if you do something for someone because you think, I want to help that person. No, that's wrong. the wrong thing to do. It's the wrong motivation. <laughs> I, um, I don't know if it's the wrong thing to do, but it's the wrong motivation for sure. Right, so it's it's better than doing, so what is it, the, the four different types of acts? He says, so the worst is to act contrary to duty. Exactly. Next up is acting in accordance with duty, but because of some immediate or immediate inclination. Yes. And that's like, it's not bad, but it's not good. good. Exactly. And the best is acting in accordance with moral duty for the sake of duty. Exactly. Because I think that the other one is like acting 
you know, within the parameters of duty, but because I want to gain something. Right? Exactly. The hypothetical imperative, right? I, yeah, yeah. If then. So was it the, the hypothetical? Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. If then. If I, if I want to go to heaven, I <laughs> will not do this, right? Right, or I right. will do that. And that's not good. Mm-hmm. Even though that could be, I won't kill you because I want to go to heaven. That's still not good enough. Which is so interesting, right? Because it's like this isn't a hypothetical imperative. It is categorical. Exactly. Right? It's just logically on paper, exactly. categorically correct, which interesting choice of words. And I'm wondering and like what you think of that. I think that he, that's meaningful that, that he chose those words. Again, I, I don't think his was one who used words lightly, right? Definitely not, as evidenced yeah. by everything he ever wrote. Exactly. It's like this is like the fact that's categorical once more stresses the fact that if you are reasoning correctly, there is no way out of this. Mm-hmm. Humanity, once again, the fact that you are part of the species dictates that you behave this way. Hmm. I think that this, we don't stress this enough, but I think there is a really, really deep and strong connection between this, between human, be, being a human being and behaving morally. Hmm. And I think that the justification of uh, for example, he doesn't care for non-human animals, right? He doesn't care for them. They they are less valuable than people, and they're not even really not part of the moral equation there. And that's justified by that, mm-hmm. by the fact that the value comes with reason, and with reason comes morality. So they're incapable of moral reasoning right. by definition, uh, which also has some problems, right? Sure. Because, uh, and not just for the animals, because then we're scaling people as well. Because there are some people that, by definition, mm. are incapable of rational reasoning, right? That's true. And, like, does that change the are, are structure they, of the moral obligation? Exactly. Are they less valuable, first of all? Are they because they're incapable of making moral judgments? Are they less than human? Because mm. the way it goes, I think it can be interpreted that way. I agree. And especially when you consider that he was. Mr. Enlightenment, and yes. in the piece, What is Enlightenment, he talks about how independence is this number one thing you should strive for and not to depend on other people for advice or anything like that, right? And you want to be a strong, autonomous individual that's super rational. Yes, and and I wonder if that cuts out of the possibility of doing that to a whole group of people. Hmm. Uh, and I wonder if, for example, disabled people in that case, I wonder what's the relationship that kind of would have with that. That's uh, a good question. Uh, and I wonder if our relationship with that, let's say, let's say I am the strong, rational human being, and I'm looking at a person that has a disability, if I am with Kant perspective in mind, if I have Kant perspective in mind, does that mean, first of all, that this person immediately is less viable than somebody else? Hmm. Because this person is unable to make moral decisions or unable to be rational the way I am? Or is it is it less? Is it... Completely out of it, mm. uh, because it, it leaves room to this the amoral realm, right? That's reserved for for people like kids or animals, right? Or, right. Uh, that are not able to access that level. But the trick with kids is they're not yet able, but then eventually they'll graduate to to rationality and they graduate to becoming to striving to become this independent human being. But then there are people that cannot have this independence and what do we do with that i don't know and i think that that's one of the issues with that um with 
again, that doesn't mean that we should throw the baby with the bathwater, right? I think that there are some things that can be saved, but I think that there, there's some some important yeah, and I mean limitations to this. There's something interesting to be said where so Aristotle was obviously first, and then at some point in history, Kant was a thing, and then Mill was a thing, and it seems like they each took some aspect of Aristotle. They each took a different aspect and split up. Absolutely. And so in a weird backwards way, Aristotle's like the synthesis of, of yeah. these two things. Yes. Where we consider consequences, but we also consider motivation, and we also consider the act, and we also consider context. And so for some people, this is a great thing because it's like we have that wiggle room and we're being more realistic without getting rid of the rigor. But on the other hand, someone might say that's too much gray area and he doesn't give us enough answers. Absolutely. And I wonder if the split happens because of the filter that there is between Aristotle and this people, which is Christianity, right? Mm. And the interpretation with the natural law theory and all this stuff that is within the middle uh, or the... Because that's that's also something that we need to think about, right? That they got filtered to these people, especially to these people. I think we know ourselves better now than they did. That that's an interesting point. The filter through like medieval Christianity, you're yeah. saying, yeah. And I think I am guilty of this, and I wonder if you are too. Is like, there's the Greeks, and then there's <laughs> and then there's the Enlightenment. Uh, partially, yes. Um, I know a little bit because I had to do this through grad school. Same. same. Um, I still I still talk about natural law theory and uh, divine um, divine command theory mm-hmm. in ethics uh, in the ethics classes, but definitely I don't stress that enough, uh, and I'm culpable of knowing not knowing enough. But the the fact that famously Aristotle got you know there was a re-elaboration of Aristotle doctrines through Aquinas. I was thinking of Aquinas, yeah. And the fact that Aquinas was pretty famous until the alignment, eventually, uh, it makes me wonder if um, this split happens because of this filter. And I wonder if they had had an unfiltered access to Aristotle, if their direction would have been different. Mm. Uh, but it is true. I, I agree with you. There is this this kind of of weird uh, backwards connection to it, to 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 Aristotelian um, Aristotelian. Um, Ethics. And I think this is precisely why there was this contemporary movement to go back to sure. Aristotelian theory, right? Where you have uh, like Anscombe and, and Foote and I guess Nagel to a certain extent and all these people who said, um, hardcore consequentialism, not good. Not good. Hardcore Kantianism, not good. I think there was something to this Aristotle guy and actually what's his name? Uh, McIntyre. Yeah. He wrote that book After Virtue. He talks about how we're kind of in this state yeah. of moral chaos. Yes. Um, it's like a, he uses this really interesting analogy where it's like imagine a world where all the sciences disappeared and and things come back. You just have fragments yeah. of, of the, the original science and We'd, our language would seem similar, but it wouldn't be right. He says, that's the state we're in, in, in contemporary <laughs> morality. It's chaos. And, and I think there's there's something to it. Uh, and it's interesting that you say that, that you mentioned this bill. I'm thinking Martin Asbaum does the same thing, going mm. back to Aristotle, like kind of purifying of the sexes, the races. Take like the it's, good stuff. We, we just take the good stuff. We, we throw the, the other stuff away. But I also think that of, of the famous postmodern, uh, philosopher that at a certain point, especially with Foucault, he goes back and he says, okay, we need to, to start 
thinking about the ancient way, right? Mm-hmm. The care of the self is what's what matters the most. And he goes back to the ancients, but he doesn't go back to Aristotle. He goes back to uh, the late guys, mm. Stoicism. And there is like, um, I believe, like six months ago or so, there was this article on the New York Times about this guy promoting Stoicism again mm. and these views, um, which are interesting. Certainly there's value to it. There's value to it. And I wonder if, and I, I don't think it's by chance because especially with Stoicism, there's this idea, you know, being, this idea of being in tune with the universe, this idea of you know, accepting somehow that our um, social life and our political life doesn't really matter. And it's just about, <laughs> and I think that, that tells something. It's, and that is a morality of a period of crisis in the Western, civil, Western civilization, right? Mm-hmm. The Greeks in, are fragmenting, it's in decline. With the Romans, there's a little bit of resurgence, but eventually it declines again. And Stoicism becomes the, what can we call it, the official philosophy of imperial Rome, right? Which is a moment of crisis again in Western civilization. It's all about staying strong through conflict. Exactly. And it's about valuing the individual more because I cannot really care for whatever is happening because my voice doesn't count. Mm. And I think that the fact that we are, that there is a push to go back to these things, it's telling of the mm. state of our uh, That's true. society, right, like, universe. Like what do, do the desires of a historical epoch tell you about the theoretical ethics about the epoch, right? And Stoicism is another one where there's some great stuff and then some freaky stuff. Absolutely. Is that right? Like the justification of suicide, for example? Or something like that. Or I, I was thinking the, the good stuff is, you know, you should learn how to control your feelings about a situation. You shouldn't just be knee-jerk. You shouldn't automatically believe your feelings when they happen. You need to learn how to navigate things and, and to not let everything affect you so much. And that's a good piece of advice. But they go overboard with this. But they go overboard because they're like, like... You need to be unfazed by anything. Like if your wife dies... You should be like, okay, that's what the universe wants. That's right. It's, it's um, you know, imagine if you said that about... A jug, right? Yeah. A jug is gone, and you don't get sad when a jug or a door is collapsed. <laughs> so when your wife dies, say, I am, and you know. But it's interesting because they, they have this whole idea that you should want what the universe wants, not what you want, because that's foolish, right? Because you can't control. How can you impose, uh, do you really believe, that's their thing, right? Do you really believe that you can impose your will to the universe? Right. That's foolish. But you know that the universe can impose its will on you. Yeah. So you should want what the universe wants. And I, I like there's this analogy that I don't remember uh, which book well, I think was one of the textbooks that, that we used. There's this interesting analogy between um, the stoic way of understanding life and living within a movie, right? Mm. In a movie, you're a sign apart and you're going to play that part. And that is it. You can play it whining or you can play it happily in the right. best way. But that's all you got. And whatever happens around you doesn't really matter. All that matters is that you play that part. The movie's going to go right, right. its direction. And there's a little bit of value there, right? There is. It's like if you're going to be something, be the best version of that you could be. Absolutely. And but uh, to say there's an absolutely no control. That's problematic. Yes. That's problematic. And I wonder if um, the fact that, again, once more, the fact that we're going there, what does it tell us? that we are all of a sudden attracted again towards this way of thinking. It could be because 
we are the opposite and we're craving what we don't have. Maybe we're craving the structure that we don't have anymore. There's like too, we have too much of a choice, you're saying? Right, like there's too many choices, uh, too much unsurety, too much lack of judgment to refer to the first episode. Yeah. And so we just need these structures, right? These, these sources of uh, command, I guess, because they make us feel more I don't know, attuned and, and grasping of our lives. But then I wonder why don't we go back to a more, well, and maybe we are going there, a more religious uh, perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Why isn't, um, well, well, just for though, people are attracted to religious extremism more than ever, I think, at the same time. That's true. Extremism exists. That's right. And I wonder if, if we're going we're gonna to see, if we're going to uh, witness a resurgence of strong religions, right? For a while, with the Enlightenment and modernity especially, uh, there was this idea that we need to, this is superstition, we need to go science as the new god, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if we're getting tired of this. Right, because it doesn't, again, produce good results or interpretations of ourselves. There, definitely there's not enough meaning there, right? Right, because uh, if science gave us meaning, then we're in trouble. Exactly. So there's not enough meaning. There's not enough certainty now, because again, quantum physics and all this stuff, science all of a sudden is is going towards, uh, it doesn't give us enough certainty, right? right? What we expected and what we wanted from it. So there's the fail of technocracy and scientism there, right? Mm-hmm. They're failing to give us those values. And I wonder if the first, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, let's go back to what gives us all the value, which is mm. those religious structures, which they structure your life, telling you the meaning is this, the life is this. And I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish this. I'm saying this is a way in which you gain value. Back. Sure, and it could, it could potentially be an effective synthesis of the two extremes. It, and it very, very well be. I'm thinking. So my fiance was uh, telling me about this article she teaches in her class, which talks just about this: how there's this resurgence in younger people being religious and I think like millennials becoming nuns. Yeah. Wow. And it seems to really point towards these things we're talking about that people lack this structure and meaning as a result of the hyper scientism perhaps. And uh, and again, I'm I'm not even sure that's a bad thing. No, no. Um I wonder though if there's going to be a resistance. Uh, I wonder if it's easier to go back to stoicism than to go back to this because most people the mentality, the, our mentality, we can say, um, it's almost, um, how can we say, we have decided that certain things are superstition. Again, we are being conditioned to go back to something that we said before, from the enlightenment on of thinking of these things like religion, either as superstition or as something that it's kind of iffy. That's right. It's the not real truth. It still gives us uncertainty. While instead with stoicism is this idea which is pretty weird, um, that the fact that there is a complete lack of control, that the universe works in a specific way that I cannot explain, but however, is not necessarily controlled by a god, by someone. But there's this absolute lack of free will, mm. if you want. For some reason, it's more appealing. And I wonder if it's, it has something to do with responsibility. It might very well be, because to, even within religion, you need to be responsible to access certain things, while with, with Stoicism, is like kind of relativism. That's right. So, so the negative aspects of Stoicism could very well result in relativism and come from the same motivational places. Mm. It's like, 
well, it's easier in the short term um, to to think that I'm not responsible for something. And so, hey, yeah, let's just point fingers. Yeah, I'll, I'll just play my part. And all I yeah. say is, you're playing the part wrong. You should be playing the part. Yeah, and, I didn't mean to do that. I couldn't control this. Exactly. You're judging me negatively. I, and, and, and I wonder if, again, does, I, I agree with you. We see, we've seen this resurgence of, again, religious movements, extremism and not extremism at the same time. There's like this real crave for structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if this is where we want to go, though, as a society. Mm. I don't know if having a hyperstructure, hyperstructured society is the solution there as well. Right, because that obviously could go south very quickly. Exactly. When I think of that, I think about dictatorship. I think of mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily political, but I think of a dictatorship within the mind, within ideas. As, within as you say, uh, epistemological dictatorship, Exactly, right? an epistemological dictatorship. And that is probably the scariest thing when it comes to this kind of stuff for me. Because the moment we start uh, structuring everything, it's like censorship. The moment you start censoring stuff, we're in trouble. That's a good point, yeah. Uh, we are really in trouble because then all of a sudden, it's not the censorship, the, it's not the, the dictatorship per se, but it's the fact that if we dictate everything, if we structure everything, whatever doesn't fit the structure is outside. And if it is outside the structure long enough, it's going to be gone. And then you need somebody to rediscover it, to rethink of it. And these processes take hundreds of years. Mm. And that is dangerous, in my opinion. That is, We can leave out of the structure something that it is the key for us to live better, to achieve this eudaimonia yeah i'm just thinking of uh i hate saying it but middle ground again <laughs> because <laughs> i know that's that's where he points because it's not true you know some people will say like structure is inherently bad no definitely right? not all power relations are bad and it's like no some of them are natural and some of them are effective and some of them help you live i don't think you can do with i mean right you can't do like think of a, a world where there's absolutely no structural power relations but I, I honestly believe that, well, first of all, that would be insane. Right. Uh, secondly, I don't think you can do that because I think that if there is something that is that is part of who we are, it is the fact that we are in a constant power struggle uh, with each other, with the universe, with everything. And and the problem is, once again, the, the let's call it vulgarization of certain terms, right? Power has become this bad term. Mm. The powerful is a bad person automatically, right? If somebody has power, that they're means oppressing it, you. They're oppressing you and they're abusing that. Truth is that without power, there is also no rebellion against the oppression. That without power, there is no countering all these things. Power is not something that you hold. It's something that almost it's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's mm. everything. And it's not negative. It is an essential aspect of life, we can say. Sure, you have to master your environment. Exactly. And again, is is the power structure, is the power struggle. Again, there is a power struggle between me and the plant that I'm feeding from, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I always think think of artichokes. Those things are now (laughs) made for us to pick, right? The plants defend themselves. Mm Mm-hmm animals forget it right even more right mm-hmm. i haven't seen any animal that says please kill me i won't be eaten right <laughs> that doesn't happen 
but it also happens in uh, when I think of, of power in a in a not necessarily negative way, not because again those seems to say, oh, I am killing the plant or whatever or the animal to feed myself. But there is a power structure that's necessary, for example, in the life of a couple, right? When you are married or when you are with someone, when you have a romantic relationship with one, there is a certain power dynamic that goes on in there. And this needs, and the balance is delicate, and there's not that one is oppressing the other, but the structure is necessary for the relationship to exist. Absolutely, because it's only on the basis of those relations that the relationship could exist. Exactly, exactly. And that, and sometimes it's so hard to, to even fandom this idea that, oh, power is not bad. Right, because if you're like, let me reevaluate um, the unjust power struggle in my relationship. Let's completely become different people and act in ways where we don't oppress each other. It's like your relationship is going to fall apart because you're you're making it something that it's not. Of course, and it's always a struggle, isn't it? It's always a again power struggle, not in the sense of. I think that even the pocket of meaning that come out of the relationship that you have with other person are due to the power struggle that you have. Absolutely. Uh, again, I hate to make this example because it can be uh, misunderstood, but the fact that you are doing some, let's say you're here, we're doing this right now. Well, let's say Claire right now is at home and she is doing laundry. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you do laundry, so not, <laughs> not a good one. Uh, she's both. cooking. She's cooking. Okay. She's cooking also for you, right, tonight. Uh, on the very surface thing, you're having fun doing this while she's oppressed at home cooking. The woman is cooking at home. Bad, bad example of power structure that's there right at the end of the day that is not necessarily true first of all this pocket of pleasure that you gain by doing this it is in direct correlation with the fact that you were able in your relationship to carve out this time where you do this while she's at home and i'm sure that there are situations where the opposite happens you're at home doing something and she's doing laundry and she is (laughs) and she is instead out doing something that she likes and the pleasure that she gains from doing that is also derived by the fact that the power structure that you have established with her gives us the pocket as well i think that these things are connected and not separable sure it's like in order for things to run smoothly and authentically certain things will have to be in place and it's not like you're consciously being like all right here are the rules here's the structure it's just like because of our continued interaction, we've freely been able to feel out what works, and it doesn't make it a bad thing, right? So, again, structure isn't inherently bad, nor do we want to say that it's inherently good, because clearly there are bad structures. It's, it's like we just want the good structures. And, we, again, and I don't think, I, I don't think you can avoid that. There's... Right. Again, it's, it's structures like a, will be there. It's a natural component. Yes, structural. Uh, I don't know if I call it natural necessarily, but I think that this is the way we are, uh, the way we have developed hmm. uh, into interacting with each other doesn't permit us to to exist without outside of the structure, outside of this power structure. And so maybe the role of ethics uh, is to figure out how we should act and how we should be in these structures. Possibly, yeah. And when determining what the structures are, right? That's just one goal. That's that that could very well be. I I think you're correct, and I think that the role of ethics is very well. It's likely that, and I think that it is important also that we understand that 
because of that, ethics is not a natural enterprise. Mm. We don't have it now. I think we go back to Aristotle again. I think we learn those behaviors. And they, are, and they function within this web of relationships that we create because of the way we interact with each other, which could be different, but within this system that we have developed since forever, and that could possibly be, have been different. However, ethics is that unnatural, artificial thing hmm. that we use actually to, um, to restrain the natural pitfalls that we have. It absolutely could be that, right? It's like if it wasn't there, the results might be terrible. But that's not a natural thing, I, I, and I am always adamant about this. Ethics is nothing natural. There's mm-hmm. nothing natural about me behaving in specific ways because that's the right thing to do, because I want to respect the other, because I want to create this, and I want to stay with this, uh, with this infrastructure of power struggles, mm-hmm. structures that are there, uh, and I want to make sure that it's within an equilibrium, right? There's nothing natural about that. I think that ethics is the absolute opposite of instinct. Because it's about potential, right? Yes. It, precisely in being about what should be, it's not about what is. Exactly. Although that may be a factor in it. it definitely. It is a factor. I it. could see that. I'm just thinking of a naturalist, a, sci- a scientist pushing back saying, oh, well, the reason you feel the, the drive towards ethics um, is precisely because it is evolutionarily advantageous. And so it works in the natural. But that's a whole other conversation. That's, and, like, that's not what you mean, obviously. No, no. no, no. What I mean is, uh, again... If we got to be serious here, right? Uh, it is natural advantageous to me to reproduce as much as I can every time I can. And again, I don't want to... You know what that means. Uh, uh, of course, right? That, the issue here is if we're serious, and I shouldn't care. I always make this example because I think it's extreme enough that it gives everyone an idea. It's like, why should I care about the consent of another person? It is about my reproductive urge. Mm-hmm. It's not even about pleasure. It's about, you know... A natural drive. A natural drive, Right. However, I think we agree that it is kind of not good <laughs> to do that, right? Yes. Uh, that rape is definitely frowned upon. Not a good thing. Not a good thing, and I think with good reason. But this fact, the fact that we frown upon something, is ethics, is not nature. Because nature says the opposite. Mm. It works, and that seems to point towards yeah. the will. The w- <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Okay, so that should be good for that. Yep, I think that's it. Uh, Next time. All right. Mm